I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of the Tap on the Wrist podcast. Woo! Another episode. 95. Closer to 100. I mean, we are... We're eerily close to 100. Yeah, we have to start prepping for that. I know. Anyway, we're here at 95. And for those of you joining randomly at this episode... We are in our fourth season, and we are doing Spin the Bottle, where we spin on a board that we made beautifully by hand every week to get a new topic, Uh, and this week's topic was around the world. Yes. So our stories both take place in countries that are not America. Correct. (laughs) Correct. Uh, And I do feel like we did have another Around the World episode very recently. We did. Uh, but you know what? The wheel spins what it spins. Well, and you know, there's so many more countries than America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's fine. I think so too. Um, but here in America, in New York, Laura and I went to a Broadway show. Yes. This was Vanessa's first Broadway show since the pandemic. Yes. It's been two years since I've seen a Broadway show and that was really exciting Um, We saw Moulin Rouge, which was, I mean, I don't know if it was so amazing to me because it was the first show I've seen in so long, but I thought it was amazing. It was very well done. Yes. The music was great. The set was beautiful. The costumes. Yeah. And I also love the movie Moulin Rouge, so that I'm sure played into it as well. Yeah. It was just, it was unfortunate that there was a massive snowstorm in the city. Yes. <laughs> so, like, all day we kept waiting for them to be like, shows of tonight's performance have been canceled. But then they weren't. But then we did have to trudge out in a snowstorm. Yeah, we did. But it was worth it because it was great. Yes. A hundred percent worth it. Uh, recommend if you come to New York and do you want to see a show yourself. Yeah. Um, but besides that, I feel like it's been... We're recording on a Sunday, so we've had our weekend already, and it's been kind of nice because I feel like things are getting a little bit normalish again. Like, I have, like, my weekend this weekend has been very normal. Yeah, you know, it's like there, I feel like there was an uptick with cases, and we were like, oh shit, is the, are things going back to, like, how they were? Um, and I feel like they did for a couple of weeks, but now we're, like, returning to normal yes. again a bit. It's been nice. We've met up with friends a few times, Mm -hmm. gone out to local businesses. Yeah. We went back to Maggie Hall's, which we (laughs) talked about last week on the podcast. Yes. We visited again. Yes. It is a great bar, so. Yeah. I feel like it's a place we'll go pretty often. Yeah. They're going to know our name. Yeah. (laughs) They might already. They might already know Laura's name, so it's definitely going to be, like, a spot that we go to. Um. But yeah, it's 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 just been kind of been great to be able to see friends and and socialize. Laura and I had a book club meeting. Love those. Yeah. Book nerds. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's I'm to a point and you're you're in a little different situation because you're still working from home. Uh-huh. But I'm working Monday to Friday and then I'm enjoying my weekends and I'm feeling very 2019 yeah. right now, which is good. And I'm getting excited for, like, travel plans in the future. Right. And, you know, we're going to Vegas. So I feel like for two years we've been talking about 
what will post-pandemic life be? And Mm -hmm. I know we are not post-pandemic, and I know that there are parts of the country that are living in surges right now. But here in New York, we have kind of gotten past the Omicron surge. Yeah. And we are now reopening again. Right, the the numbers are going down, and yeah. And we're just making smart choices, wearing masks when we're around people, and hand sanitizer, but... Life has to resume. Yeah. To the best of our ability. And it kind of I'm I'm feeling hopeful again. Hopefully not too too like early, but it's it's been a good couple weeks. It definitely has. Uh so we hope that you guys are, you know, enjoying your time with family and friends and getting to see people. Um it's, it's just great. I mean, you know, I do feel like a certain comfort level knowing that, like, in New York, you have to be vaccinated to go into businesses, uh, so... Unless you're Sarah Palin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess there are some <laughs> But, uh, I, I, I think we're lucky to live in a city that, you know, takes that seriously. Yes. For the most part. Yes. Except some places. <laughs> Except places where Sarah Palin needs to <laughs> But anyway, yes. we're not talking about New York. No, we're talking around the world this week. <laughs> and we are going to be posting pictures from both of our stories this week mm-hmm. on our social media. So make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at a tap on the wrist. And as always, feel free to email us with, you know, questions, with topics, with clarifications if we got anything wrong or you have any additional information that we might have missed, we just love hearing from people. Absolutely. So you can email us at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you enjoy traveling the world. Woo! My story today is taking us across the pond, around the world, whatever we're calling it, to a country that I have visited in person. Okay. And explore it a little bit, but not nearly as much as I want to. So I do hope I one day get to go again. Okay. And that is Italy. Italy. Yes. Love Italy. Uh, And I'm actually kind of combining two of our wheel themes this week. Because I am telling you a story from around the world. But I'm also telling you kind of a, a liquor cocktail origin story. Okay. Because... I wanted to, and I, I can. <laughs> I, I feel like in, in a category like around the world, we're like often going to combine different, right? Because it's like so generic. It's like a true crime story from around the world. Or, an or, or a biography. Yeah. yeah. So today I'm sharing the history and then giving some uses outside of what we think and know of amaretto. Love it. I like amaretto. Me too. Personally, I think amaretto is like a a gateway liquor. Yeah. It's like... Like an amaretto sour. <laughs> yeah. Definitely drank it in college. Yeah. Low alcohol. Like, you're not going to get wasted on it. It was sweet. It was a little fruity. Yeah. You can order it at any bar. Um, so, yes, I think of amaretto as like a gateway liquor. Yeah. But I've never really stopped to think about what it is or where it is. And to be honest, I know I like it, but I don't have it on my bar cart. No, and like I don't 
Yeah, I never make cocktails with it myself. Right. But interesting, like, well, you said amaretto sour, and I think that's the only way I've ever had an amaretto. Yeah. However, amaretto actually is quite diverse and is one of the few Italian drinks that can be used as an aperitif. Nice. And a digestif. Yep. Yes. And. Throwback to our last Around the World episode. And amaretto can also be a standalone served on the rocks if you want to drink it that way. It can also be the main ingredient in a cocktail, like mm. an amaretto sour, or it can be like the additional liqueur added to cocktails to just kind of give it a slightly like nuttier, bold taste. Okay. So it is, I might say, very diverse. Yes. But I didn't know anything about it, and I don't have it on my bar cart, which I don't understand. I might have to Has rectify this inspired that. you? Like, this research inspired you to get some? No joke. I looked on Drizzly before you got here. <laughs> and I was going to have it delivered, but it was going to take too long, and I knew it would be recording, and I didn't want to have to, like, stop just to answer the door for some amaretto. But, yes, I've been very inspired by it, writing this story, and now I'm going to buy some. I feel like people use it in baking, too. I'm going to get there. Okay. Yes. So, I told you, like, and you mentioned, amaretto is a sweet drink, but ironically, the word in Italian comes from the word amaro, which means bitter, and it's the mild bitterness of the almond flavor is where it gets its name. I thought it was, like, supposed to be almond It is almond flavored. And... Most people believe it is just made with a base of almonds. However, it's not just almonds. In many recipes for amaretto, it's actually made from apricot kernels with almonds. And it's that combination that gives it the flavor. Okay. And I was like, like the pits of a apricot? And that is exactly what it is. Interesting. So interesting. And then now I'm going to get a little sciency, and I'm not sure I fully understand this next part. Great. But stick with me here. Basically, they take the pits of the apricot and dry them out, and then they are crushed. And this process releases an amygdalin that breaks down into three pieces. It breaks down into glucose or sugar. Mm-hmm. It breaks down into benzylhyde which is that sharp almond flavor oh benzylhyde okay yeah (laughs) no idea and then it breaks into the highly toxic hydrogen cyanide oh making some poisons yes but like and that's what the apricot kernel it's all three when you break which makes sense because cyanide has an almond scent i was just gonna say that i was gonna say is that why it has an almond scent yes (laughs) and i didn't know that but yes So, um, it's known that each bitter almond may contain an average of six milligrams of toxic hydrogen cyanide, which is far more than you would find in a cigarette. It is far more than you would find, and it can be seriously dangerous. Right. Crazy. So, what happens is... During the process of creating and distilling and fusing 
the alcohol with these apricot kernels and the almonds, mm -hmm. the alcohol kills off the cyanide. Good. Good. Um, and it extracts the, the benzyl hide. And after all of the filtrations and everything that they do, there is no hydrogen cyanide in amaretto. Okay. And But if you smell a drink or have a drink that smells like almonds, you don't know if you're having amaretto or cyanide. I know. But amaretto, even though it has the very super distinct taste of an almond, there's no traces of nuts in it. Interesting. Yes, and it is safe for those with nut allergies. Oh, good to know. I mean, I'm not allergic to almonds, but like... I know. It's interesting because I would think if I was allergic to almonds, I would think I I wouldn't drink amaretto. Exactly. But, but you can't. So then I, I started question. I was like, well, what is this bitter almond that... I mean, like... Yeah. And I guess I, I didn't realize uh, that there are two kinds of almonds. There's like... A, what's called the bitter almond, mm -hmm. which is what they use for almond-flavored things such as amaretto or marzipan because it has such a very distinct almond flavor. Uh -huh. And then there are, like, what's called a sweet almond, which are the almonds we all eat. Yeah. And I've never put it together that, like, I love, like, give me a rainbow cookie, give me an almond croissant... Rainbow. And they do taste different than a handful of almonds. almonds. Yeah. And that's why. They're two different kinds of almonds. Interesting. Yeah. I know. You're so right. Like, I, I never really thought about the fact that if I just ate a handful of almonds, it would taste different than if I had an almond croissant. Right. Never thought about it. Or marzipan. Or yeah. almond, like, extract. It, like, it's a different type of almond, and they have to go through this process to extract the cyanide. I know. When you cyanide would be so tasty. Oh, hello. <laughs> uh, and just a fun fact that um, in North America, bitter almonds are actually very strongly regulated due to the cyanide. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to get them outside of, like, it's almost non-existent to get them if you're not commercially, like, using them to create something like amaretto or marzipan. Right. Um, in most cases, like if I wanted something almond flavored and I went to the store, I'd have to buy almond extract, which right. is artificial. Yeah. I can't source cyanide almonds. <laughs> because they don't trust uh, that, Americans. That makes sense. Honestly. You can buy them in like the UK and stuff, but here in America, they're heavily regulated. Weird. Okay. Because we can't be trusted with anything. No. I mean, I get it. But all that to be said, let's get to the history of amaretto. Let's do it. And in true history fashion, there's not just one straight story. Of course not. Two different families claim responsibility for this liquor. Um, and they both have kind of equally interesting stories to back up their claim. Love that. So the first comes from the Lazzaroni family in Sorono, Italy. Uh, and they claim the title as the inventors of Amaretto. Uh, but you won't recognize their name probably from Amaretto liqueur. And I don't know that we would recognize their name from almond cookies. But that is what they are most famous for. It is like a small almond cookie that is served 
across Italy with almost every coffee that you order at like a cafe. What is the name? Uh, it's spelled L-A-Z-Z-A-R-O-N-I. Hmm. And so this cookie is literally got four ingredients. It's got sugar, apricot kernels, because they do that whole science-y thing I talked about mm-hmm. to get the almond flavor, and egg whites. And so it's a very, and it, so it's almost like a meringue-like almond cookie. Mm-hmm. And delicious. you drink it with usually coffee or espresso. Uh-huh. Uh, and you can get them all over Italy. I'm here for it. Yeah. And so they invented that cookie, mm-hmm. and that's what they're known for. And then the story goes, so they invented the cookie around the year 1786. Um, and it was created for the king that was reigning in their region. I didn't really look up the full history of the cookie. But they say that they one day took the cookie, crushed the cookie up, and put it in some, like, bland alcohol. Uh-huh. And infused the alcohol with their almond cookie. And that's how they created amaretto. Okay. And they say that that is still how they do it. Um, They bake all their cookies. They then crush the cookies. Soak it in the, it's called hydroalcoholic solution. Uh And then they go through a filter, uh, like a filtration process to remove the cookie pieces. But the alcohol has been infused with their almond cookie flavor. So they, like, still have a distillery, basically. Yes. Okay. And then they do add in other distinctive, yet highly secretive, they won't tell you what, ingredients, dilute it with water and sugar, and bottle it. And they make, it's their own brand, it's the Lazroni uh, Amaretto, it's called Lazroni Amaretto 1851. And they say they are the first to bottle Amaretto, and they hold the title. Okay. However, down the road from them, still in Serono, Italy. Okay, same uh, area. There is another family, and this is the Reina family. And their legend starts hundreds of years earlier, but people don't... It depends on who you ask which story you believe, mm-hmm. because there's a little bit of controversy that members of the Reina family worked in the Lazaroni cookie uh, warehouse so that they might have been inspired and then created their own amaretto uh-huh. and then created this backstory so it seemed like they were first. Um, but we'll get to that when I once I tell you the story in length. So this legend goes that in the 1500s, a local Serono, um, in the, the town of Serono, a artist showed up named Bernardino Luini. And he was a student of Leonardo da Vinci. And he had been asked to travel to Serono in 1525 um, to commission. He was commissioned to paint frescoes in a church known as the Santa Maria del Grazi. And to, in order to paint these beautiful paintings in this church he needed a model Mm -hmm. and so a beautiful innkeeper who was recently widowed volunteered and became his muse and some say she became much more than that and they were madly in love um and he he painted these beautiful frescoes in this church using her 
And to demonstrate her feelings towards him, she gave him this special gift, which was her homemade liqueur, which happens to be amaretto. Mm. And her recipe was a blend of brandy with apricot kernels and her own secret mix of spices. And they fell madly in love and lived happily ever after. And her... Her recipe gets passed down. However, it gets lost at some point in history until 300 years later. We're going to make a jump from 1525 to 1900 when the Reyna family finds this innkeeper's secret family recipe Mm -hmm. and recreates their version of amaretto. Which is where the, like, okay, did they create Amaretto and they wanted to have a cool backstory? Yeah. Because there is no history of those 300 years of anyone in this family making making Amaretto. So, just around the year 1900, which is about 20 years after the Lazzaroni family, like, start Lazzaroni family has made it, this other family starts making it in the same same town. Right. So, whatever. I mean... the cookie people. Huh? I believe the cookie people. I believe the cookie people as well. But this second story is the one that sits on the heritage page of the world's most famous amaretto. Okay. Di Serono. Yeah. So, it is the more widely believed tale Uh because Di Serono has become... So the big. world's yeah. amaretto. Right. So, well, I think when you look at both stories, the Lazaroni's family's tale seems more legitimate mm-hmm. and realistic. Unfortunately, Lazaroni Amaretto 1851 did not go worldwide, is not nearly as well known. No. So the second tale of the Reina family and the Di Serono brand is much more widely accepted. Yeah. Um, and people say that, like, it is possible the Reina family did have a secret recipe, like, at the, if, if this widowed innkeeper did have a recipe and was creating it for locals, nothing at that time would have been mass produced. It wouldn't have been until... It is totally plausible. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it... It is a little suspicious. Um, but so how the Di Serono brand begins is around the year 1900, as I said, in the first early years of the 20th century. Uh, D- it's Domenico Reina opens a store and a workshop and starts to produce their, his own amaretto liqueur. And it's here that Di Serono original was produced and marketed. And... In the early years, it has a very different look. It looks very much like a wine bottle. I will post a picture of the original Di Serono bottle on the Instagram. Add a tap on the wrist. Uh, uh, thanks. But um, it looks nothing like the very distinct rectangle bottle that we all know and yeah. recognize as Di Serono today. That bottle did not come into play until 1942. Where they were like, our cylinder bottle is not standing out on a shelf. So they went for a more unique shape. 
Um, and then it's really, it's not until the 1960s when Di Sorono begins exporting to countries like America where it becomes super widely popular. Mm. And for the past 50 years, I would say there's not a bar in America that you would walk into. And if you ask for Amaretto, they're probably pouring you Di Sorono. Yeah. Um, it is like the main market Amaretto yeah. here. Like, yes, there are knockoff versions. And I... I say knockoff versions because I consider that the version. There are other companies making amaretto that's probably just as good, but yeah. I I almost don't say amaretto without thinking of the Di Sorono yeah. bottle. I couldn't name another amaretto if I tried. I know, um, but as we we started the story with, I also can't think of another cocktail. Besides an amaretto sour. Besides an am- amaretto sour. So I wanted to, because that's really the history of amaretto there. That's yeah. those two stories. So I wanted, I didn't want to just end there. I, I found a couple of recipes and other uses for amaretto that I want to share. Um, and an amaretto sour is very basic. So I, I did a little hunting and I found an adult or elevated version of an amaretto sour. I'm here for it. Okay, so this uses, um, and I'm not going to do the full measurements. I'm just going to tell you ingredients, okay. and maybe we we'll, can post we can recipes, them. Yeah. yeah, but so an adult amaretto sour, as I've named it, okay. has amaretto, bourbon, okay, lemon juice, simple syrup, and egg white. All right. Well, now I'm mad that you didn't get amaretto. <laughs> And that we can't make one right now. Yeah. So it it still has that sweet and sour because of the amaretto and the lemon juice. Uh-huh. But when you add in, like, the bourbon and the egg white, you're going to get, like, the nice head on top. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get, like, the boldness of the so bourbon. Good. Yeah. So it, it just elevates the amaretto sour. Yeah. And is a classier drink than... Mm-hmm. Sour mix and amaretto. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also found something if you're looking for a more desserty cocktail or cream, creamy cocktail. This one is called the toasted amaretto, and it uses it's kind of like a an amaretto martini almost. It's vodka, amaretto, and Kahlua. I mean, or or another coffee liqueur. But again, I could debate coffee liqueurs and not using Kahlua. The yeah. Same, yeah. Um, and then like a splash of heavy cream Ooh, and you shake it, intriguing. you shake it together, put it in a martini glass and it's like a dessert martini. So toasted amaretto. It's like a black Russian, but with amaretto and cream. Yeah. I'm not mad at it. Yeah. I um, it. quite a few people on things I was reading were suggesting literally just using amaretto, um, in coffee. Like, making an Irish coffee, but instead of, like, Jameson throwing in amaretto. Yeah. yeah. Um, you could also toss it in, like, an espresso martini if you're not into, like, a, a creamy drink. Just doing, like, the vodka, espresso, and amaretto. Mm-hmm. Again, like, an almond espresso martini. And then if you don't want to drink it, there are other uses for amaretto. Um... You could put them in cookies. You could try making your own almond meringues. Yeah. Uh, you could also do things that I found online. They say it's a great addition to things maybe you wouldn't expect, like pancakes. Throwing a little into some pancake Ooh. batter. Ooh. I know. 
um, pouring a little on some ice cream. Ooh. Using it, using it in a tiramisu. Yeah. I know. I was like, these are amazing yeah. ideas. So, um, amaretto is going to be in my cart my next trip to the liquor store. Also, I'm laughing at myself because in retrospect, I just said, it's like a black Russian with cream, which is <laughs> white Russian. Yeah. It's a white Russian with amaretto. <laughs> True. You are correct. Um, but so it's, I just think it it's a little bit underrated. We don't use it no. for all the purposes. And on ice cream, I want like now. I want to put it in a milkshake. Are you kidding me? Ooh, love that <laughs> boozy milkshake with amaretto. I know. So I have some sources. Uh, the first one is a an article from thisbruceeats.com. And it was just amaretto liqueur history. Then uh, a very interesting article on the Italian history of amaretto. And it was written on a website called littlerizzos.blogspot.com. All of the sciencey cyanide info came from disgracesonthemenu.com, an article about amaretti and amaretto. And then um, I did use both, both amaretto... Um, families that I mentioned, they're like heritage legacy pages. So DeSerono.com, they have a heritage page that claims their story. And then the Lazaroni.com has a heritage page about Amaretto Lazaroni 1851 and their story. Okay. So that's the history of Amaretto. Gotta get some Amaretto for my bar cart now that we're going to make. I know. (laughs) So I'm honestly surprised that we have never done my story before. Ooh. Because it is the history of an event that I'm sure most, if not everyone, has heard of. Can you guess? Oktoberfest. (laughs) (laughs) And I only knew that because you did tell me your story took place in Germany. Yeah. Uh, And so I was like, wait, it's an event everyone's heard of. It's got to be Oktoberfest. That's so funny because... Before we hit record, when we were just chatting, I was telling Vanessa about yep. a new German <laughs> restaurant, and like that's how I was explaining to you. They're like, it's like Oktoberfest all year round. Yeah, I'm I actually so- almost said it, but I was like, nope, I want to wait for her reaction on <laughs> on tape. Uh, so I didn't say that I was doing Oktoberfest. But when you were telling me about it, I was like, man, we should have ordered from there for like. I know. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. I'm excited. Yes. So, Oktoberfest is, like, something that, I, like I said, I've heard of a lot, but I have no idea what it is. I just know that... It's a lot of drinking. I just know there's a lot of drinking. There's Stein-holding contests. Yes. People are Lidlhosen. Yes, they do. (laughs) That is what I know. (laughs) So, Oktoberfest has actually been held annually in Munich, in Germany, since 1810. So for over 200 years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, In modern times, about 6 million people attend every year, which makes it the world's largest Volksfest, which basically means that it's a large wine or beer festival, in this case, beer festival. That also includes a traveling fun fair or what we would say a traveling carnival. Okay. Uh, It takes place in mid or late September and lasts until around the first Sunday in October. Interesting. Yes. 
I thought it took place in October. We'll get there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, there are like mini Oktoberfest that are held all over the world, uh, including here in America. There are many that you can choose from, from like big town events to like bars just honoring the time. Yeah. Uh, But the original festival still takes place in the same place in Munich, Germany every year. Wow. And that place is very hard to pronounce. (laughs) It is a festival ground. It's like Theresienweise. I said that wrong. I'm Mm. going to show you what the word looks like. It is spelled T-H-E-R-E-S-I-E-N-W-I-E-S-E. It's a long word. Yeah. Terror, it's it should be Vice. Yeah, Vice. Yeah, yeah. It's, a du- it's a V at the end, but I mean W, but pronounced as a V. I would say it's Ter. I don't know. Teresa Weisen. That sounds great. But no, no, there's no N at the end. Teresa Weisen. Teresa Weisen. Yeah, sure. We're saying that completely wrong. I'm so sorry. We did listen, and I can't remember to pronunciation.com like. I think Vanessa played it ten times. And I still don't know how to say it. And we still can't pronounce it. So we apologize for our ignorant American accents. Yes, we are (laughs) very sorry. Um, I'm sure it sounds way cooler when a German says it. But locally, it's actually referred to as Devisen, which is like a nickname for the grounds. Uh, Eater.com has a really great description of Oktoberfest. So instead of describing it myself, I'm going to quote them. So they wrote, Oktoberfest is a two-week carbohydrate-filled festival of beer and merriment. I'm in. <laughs> That's all I need to know. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> uh, the celebration kicks off with a gun salute and a ceremonial keg tapping by the city's mayor. In addition to lots of drinking, the festivities also include a costume parade and live music. Visitors like an Oktoberfest to a mashup of beer, food, and music festivals combined with a carnival. And, like, those are all the best things. A beer festival, a music festival, a carnival. And like, pretzels. And a parade. Like, <laughs> all these things. Uh, so they continue to say, the beer tents feature live brass bands chosen by each tent proprietor that perform modern hits and folk music alongside classic German tunes. Scattered across the grounds, visitors will find carnival games and rides, including carousels, Ferris wheels, etc. So, this sounds like my type of party. It does until you tell me six million people are there. That's, true. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, but I do love a carnival. Well, it's six million people, I think, over the course two of two span. weeks. Yeah. Okay. It's still a lot, so but it's... it's not six million people at once, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think you go for a day. Yeah, no. I think, like, because I have a little bit of knowledge from when my my parents lived in Germany briefly. Mm -hmm. I'll share share it at the end, another story that I have about Oktoberfest. But, like, so I have a little bit of knowledge. And, like, my mom would go, they would go for, like, the week. And you, like, drink multiple nights in a row. Yeah. So, like, you are around millions of people. It's, it's. It's a party from what I hear. I've never been. Yeah, it is uh, pretty intense. Uh, I was, like, looking at pictures and there's just, like, 
tons of people, like the yeah. seas of people. But like from what I gather, uh, when you're actually drinking, you're like seated. Like those yeah. are long yeah, they have like, tables. Yeah, they have uh, beer tents, um, which obviously I'll get to. Yeah. Um, but it it's a very large scale event. And, uh, and have they done it the past couple of years? Or are you going to talk? Okay, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 that's okay. Uh, so, yeah, basically, if you like music, if you like people. <laughs> if, if you, you like, like music, people, beer, and carnivals. This is for you. Head to Munich. But especially if you like beer. Yes. Because they drink a lot of it. So there are 36 beer and food tents. Uh, ranging from, like, small to very large ones. And uh, all the beers from six local breweries, of which I will not pronounce because they are all German names, and I will butcher them, and I don't want to do that. Is Hofbrauhaus one? Yes. That's my favorite. (laughs) Uh, And these breweries are chosen because they adhere to Germany's beer purity law, which dictates that there must be only four ingredients in beer. Water, malt, hops, and yeast. That's it. Yes. Uh, And I just want to note that in 2017, because as Laura alluded to, there have been a few years where it has not happened, uh, 7.7 million liters of beer were served. Wow. That's a lot of beer. That's a lot of beer. Also, these are not beers you would like. Like, it's not fruited beers. Yeah, no. Well, considering it's just those four base ingredients, Yeah. Um, and then this, this isn't alcohol related, but in addition to the 7.7 million liters of beer, there were also 466,747 roast chickens. Okay. 206, 206,535 pairs of pork sausages and close to 45,000 kilograms of roasted almonds served. Interesting. A lot of chicken, a lot of sausage, a lot of beer. And almonds. <laughs> Time to your story. I know. I was like, who, how did we both talk about almonds? <laughs> okay. So, like I said, I've heard, I know about this. You know about it. I'm sure many of our listeners do, but I didn't, I didn't know where it came from. And like I said, it did start like over 200 years ago. And the way it started was with a wedding. Oh. Yes. So it was the wedding of Prince Ludwig, later King Ludwig I, and Princess Therese of Saxony Hildburghausen. Uh, and that happens on October 12th of 1810. October. Good year. Yeah, a <laughs> great year. Uh, and some contacts that a year before this wedding took place, there had been like a quelled rebellion. So the wedding was kind of seen as a way to, like, establish unity across the area. And so the family invited, you know, a small group of people, like 40,000 people. Oh. <laughs> Just a small ceremony. Small, intimate, 40,000-person ceremony. Um, and so because it was so big, they did, like, a whole bunch of festivities, uh, and they were all held in front of the city gate in Munich. Uh, and those fields would later be named that word that I'm not going to say again because we both butchered it. Okay. Uh, those fields that they are still celebrated in today is where they started. And what they mean in English 
uh, is Therese's Fields. So it was named after the bride-to-be and still holds that name today. Uh, So, again, this festival and this wedding lasted for several days, and they concluded on October 18th with a horse race, as you do. I mean... That sounds like a bomb wedding. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great An eight-day wedding. wedding of partying and beer drinking. And horse racing. And ending in horse races. <laughs> I guess that was a very entertaining back then. <laughs> I, I mean, sounds like a wedding that'll last. That people will remember and for over 200 years. <laughs> uh, so the next year in 1811, after the wedding, people were like, that was really fun. Let's do it again. And so they did. They did, like, another group of festivities and ending in a horse race. So this is just, like, their um, anniversary party now. Yeah, it's their one-year anniversary. Uh, And they decided to kind of, like, add on to it since there wasn't a wedding. So they added an agricultural fair to promote the Bavarian agriculture and economy. Uh, that fair actually still happens to this day, but it's happened. It only happens every four years. Okay. Um, so they were like kind of expanding it. They were like, let's add a little more. Let's throw a fair in. Uh, the next year in 1812, it was actually canceled because of the involvement of Bavaria in the Napoleonic Wars. Makes sense. Oh, sorry. No, it happened in 1812. It was canceled in 1813 because of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. Uh, But that didn't stop them. The Germans were like, we're bringing it back the next year. And they did. (laughs) Uh, And it would continue to grow every year, adding events and attractions uh, on top of, obviously, the horse racing. They had tree climbing, you know, big event tree climbing. Yeah. Eventually, bowling alleys and swings would be added. Uh, The aforementioned swings actually were added with, along with carousels and carnival booths. Uh, in 1818, solidifying that carnival aspect of Oktoberfest. It would always be a part of it from there on. Interesting. Uh, and according to the people source, the original prizes at these carnival booths would be uh, silver, porcelain, and jewelry. Oh, which I thought it was going to be like beer tickets. I know. Like now it's like <laughs> a stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where's my jewelry? I just no. get like a, a stuffed bear. No, I want a diamond ring. <laughs> Um, I'd also take a beer ticket. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was also this year that uh, the beer and food stalls became, like, a permanent fixture. Like, the actual stalls where people were selling beer. 1818. Thank okay. you to those people. Yes. Uh, in 1819, it was officially decided that Oktoberfest would be an annual event. So it was nine years after the original one. They decided, this is our thing. Okay. We're doing it. Uh, and it became an event that would be organized by the city fathers or the people um, of the area. They assumed responsibility for the festival management. Uh, it was also after this decision to like make it the responsibility of the people that they decided to extend it because why not? <laughs> Instead of just a few days, make it a couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, and in the 1890s, to answer your question... It was moved back into September in order to take advantage of the warmer weather. They, they were like, we want to be outside in the nice weather, not when it gets colder. Okay. Um, but 
it always has to end in October uh, in order to, you know, make sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is That's October so funny because I feel like here in America, we don't, when bars celebrate it, it's yeah. in October. Yeah. And so like, clearly they're jumping on this bandwagon and they don't know the history. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some, apparently some festivals in America that, like, do it correctly, but we'll get there. Okay. Um, so most of the websites that I read have kind of, like, a list of important events that happened, so I'm going to kind of go through some of the events that happened, uh, throughout the years. Okay. So in 1850, the Statue of Bavaria was added, uh, to the fairgrounds or the festival grounds, and it has been watching over events of Oktoberfest ever since. It's still there. In 1881, Bratwurst made its first appearance to Oktoberfest food booths. Love that for them. Love that. Uh, in 1885, electric lighting was added to the tents for the first time. And party Electricity. And <laughs> Love it. Love to see it. <laughs> uh, then in 1887, a parade um, of the Oktoberfest staff and breweries was added as an annual event. It always takes place on the first Saturday of Oktoberfest, and it's become very important, and it is a way to commemorate a parade that took place in 1810 for the wedding. So it was like a way to bring back one of the traditional aspects from that very first one. Okay. Uh, that is also the year that the city named Lederhosen and Durndal? No, hold on, hold on. A Durndal. Durndal. Yeah. There you go. To the official attire of Oktoberfest. So that became the thing. In 1887. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it never stopped. No. <laughs> uh, in 1892, beer began being served in glass jugs. Uh, and that was a collaboration with local breweries and large beer halls. And they also decided to replace the original sheds with the large beer hall tents that we now have today. Uh, and the tents went up in 1896 for the first time. In 1910, that was, of course, the 100th anniversary. So they celebrated that uh, by drinking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, 120,000 liters of beer was consumed, which was a record for that time. Okay. Now, as you recall, I said over 7 million <laughs> liters were consumed, so... Kind of puts that to shame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1913, the... Uh, I forgot to look up this world word. Uh, Bryusel. Uh, that's definitely not how you say it. What do you think? Uh, Brousel? Sure. It's, pro- it's That A... I know. I don't know what It has a. like the O sound, I think. Okay. I'm sorry. I forgot to look up how to pronounce that. Uh, but it... Basically, uh, at the time, was the largest pavilion to have ever been built uh, and could hold approximately 12,000 people. It's one pavilion that holds 12,000 people? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you not want to go to there? <laughs> no, I definitely, I mean, not this year. No, I think Oktoberfest will make a bucket list of mine, but I don't know how with It'll like have to be, the, like, years from now, hopefully. Well, like, the teaching schedule, like, really yeah. doesn't fit. Yeah. It'll have to be when you take a sabbatical. Sabbatical. Oh, okay. yes. <laughs> the next notable event uh, is not a great one. 
1933, the I was gonna say World War II. Yep, the swastika replaced the Bavarian flag, and Jews were forbidden to work on the grounds. Uh, Oktoberfest as a whole basically was used as part of Nazi propaganda. Uh, a few years after the Nazis were no longer an issue, uh, in 1948, a very important event happened. The flea circus was added as a as a feature. The flea circus. The flea circus, yes. Okay. Uh, it is a team of about 60 fleas uh, that offer entertainment, especially for children. I... I... <laughs> I don't need any more information about that. <laughs> Apparently, this is the only festival that has that, so. I don't doubt that. <laughs> uh, then in 1950, the traditional to opening to Oktoberfest was first introduced, and I kind of alluded to it in the Eater quote, um, but basically at noon, a 12-gun salute is followed by the tapping of the first keg of Oktoberfest by the mayor of Munich. He then gives the first liter of beer, to the minister president of the state of Bavaria. And then Oktoberfest officially begins. Okay. Gun shoot, keg tapped, drink a beer. Love it. Love it. Uh, in 1960, sadly, the horse racing came to an end, so it lost one of its traditional things, but probably good for the horses. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have horse I know, we races. still have horse racing, so I don't really know why, <laughs> but... You're right. You're acting like if you did, they didn't <laughs> win, they got shot or something. Like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, no horse yeah, the, the derbies and stuff. I don't. I don't know why it stopped. <laughs> Maybe they couldn't fit a horse track anymore or something. They needed so another pavilion. Yeah, yeah. In the 1970s, Rosa Weizen, uh, also known as Gay Oktoberfest, began. It refers to a number of annual LGBTQ events. Uh, that take place throughout Oktoberfest in Munich. Uh, in the 1980s, unfortunately, tragedy struck. On September 26th, a bomb exploded in a dustbin near the toilets at the main entrance to Oktoberfest. Uh, the bomb consisted of an empty fire extinguisher filled with 1.39 kilograms of TNT and motor shells. And unfortunately, 13 people were killed. Uh, over 200 people were injured, with 68 people sustaining serious injuries. And it was the said second deadliest terrorist attack in German history after the Munich massacre. Uh, it was determined that it was a right-wing extremist. Gandalf Kohler, Kohler uh, was, he was killed in the blast, and they determined that he was a sole, like the sole perpetrator. However... I didn't look into it much, but I'm sure it would be very interesting. Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions if he was, like, the only person that was responsible. And so there are, like, a lot of theories that about could it. That probably be a future episode. Yeah. Um, and it's been strongly disputed by various groups. Totally. It could probably be its own episode. As a result of the events in 1981, the Oktoberfest uh, entrance was redesigned. But it seems like they didn't add security checkpoints until the events of 9-11, from what I read. Then it seems like there was nothing super notable that happened for a few years, until 2005, when the concept of Quiet Oktoberfest was developed, which basically meant that music could play until 6 p.m., um, and it had to be, like, the normal folk music. And I think after that, they could play, like, different types. 
but it had to only go up to 85 decibels. Um, and it was in order to preserve that traditional beer tent atmosphere during the day for like kids and for older people, not like, you know, people getting drunk and playing loud music and acting crazy. That happens at night. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> in 2008, a new Bavarian law was passed to ban smoking in all enclosed spaces that were open to the public. Uh, originally, there was kind of an outcry and an exception was made for Oktoberfest in the following year because it took place in tents as opposed to, like, enclosed. Right. But then in 2010, they uh, decided that it, that it wasn't ha- – they reinstituted the smoking ban. Uh, so now if you smoke and you are caught, you will not be sold beer. Wow. Yeah. It's a no-no. Uh, also in 2010, of course, Oktoberfest celebrated its 200th anniversary – uh, to market, they did bring a horse race back what? in historical costumes. <laughs> it was held on opening day. They also had a specially brewed beer that was only sold at the tents in the historical section of Oktoberfest. Uh, and there was this historical section. There was a museum tent. Uh, and it all gave visitors an impression of how the event felt two centuries back in 1810. Uh, there were five acres of fenced grounds present- which presented historic rides historic beer tents and other historical attributes which sounds like it would have been so cool that would have been great like that would have been the year to go man we missed out yes and as we kind of mentioned earlier because of the covid of it all it had oktoberfest has been canceled on several occasions aside from that 1813 napoleonic war uh, it was canceled in 1854 and again in 1873 due to cholera epidemics sickness uh in 1866 it was canceled because bavaria was involved in the austro austro-prussian war uh then in 1870 it was canceled again because they were involved in the franco-prussian war from 1914 through 1918 oktoberfest didn't take place because of world war one uh, and the first couple of years after that, in 1919 and 1920, it was celebrated as a much smaller autumn festival before getting back to its full Oktoberfestness. Uh, in 1923 and 1924, Oktoberfest was canceled due to hyperinflation, uh, which according to Wikipedia, the people's source, is uh, a very high and typically accelerating inflation that quickly erodes the real value of local currency. So they, like, just were in a position to, yeah. From 1939 to 1945, Oktoberfest didn't take place again due to World War II. And again, following it, like, sim- similarly to World War I, from 1946 to 1948, they had the small, smaller Autumn Festival. I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern yes. here, Germany. Yes. <laughs> uh... And that Autumn Festival is only celebrated with lighter beers, not the traditional Oktoberfest beers, which have a slightly higher alcohol content. Uh, And of course, in recent history, in 2020 and 2021, Oktoberfest was canceled due to COVID-19 and the infeasibility of social distancing in the festival's beer tents, Uh, just like every other festival. That has been canceled, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, it's been war and disease. Those are the only reasons that Oktoberfest has been canceled. It was like cholera, COVID, and lots of wars. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You yeah. shouldn't be 
partying during those things. Yeah. Oh, and in, uh, the one in the hyperinflation was mine. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that's a result of yeah. World yeah. War Two. Yeah. Uh, World War One. World War One. It was in the twenties. Yeah. Yeah. So of course today Oktoberfest is sometimes seen as a tourist attraction. Uh, Travel companies offer Oktoberfest packages. The city of Munich and the German National Tourist Office provide travel guides and tips for people who are traveling to the festivals. However, seventy percent of the attendants of Oktoberfest are people from Bavaria, and about. Another 15% come from somewhere else in Germany. So, like, 85% of the people attending Oktoberfest in Munich are, are Germans. Germans. Uh, with about, that leaves about 15% of tourists from other 15% countries. of 6 million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still a pretty big number. But it's still a very German festival. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, and we talked about a little bit, the tradition of Oktoberfest has spread to other places uh, because it's just fun. Yeah. You know, it's it, it doesn't have any, like, like really important historical thing behind it. It was a wedding. And, right. like, now it's just fun. Yeah. So it has spread. And uh, in Germany itself, there are celebrations that happen in Berlin and Hamburg, for example. Uh, it also spread to many other European cities, obviously to America. Uh, and that was due a lot to, like, American Germans and the immigrants that came here. And uh, the article I read on Eater, and I'm sure Wikipedia also has this, had a lot of information about other festivals, um, but apparently one of the biggest ones is Cincinnati's Oktoberfest. Oh, I was going to make a guess, and it wasn't going to be Cincinnati. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really curious. I have, like, a personal tidbit about Oktoberfest, but I don't know if you're going to talk about it. Okay. I'm almost done, so. Oh, do you have other stories in America? No. Okay, so I'll share my story when you're done. Okay. So, in Cincinnati, uh, they, it began in 1976, um, and it's now, again, one of the largest in the country. It draws about 675,000 attendees. Uh, and in addition to the traditionally German things that they do, they also include things like running of the wieners, which, uh, you want to guess Tell what me it's is? Dash Hounds. It is. It is. It is a race <laughs> of Dash Hounds. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes. Uh, I'm actually very glad it's that. <laughs> yeah, it could have been other things. That we don't want. Uh, <laughs> there's a mass chicken dance <laughs> and a bratwurst eating contest, which is so American. Oh, <laughs> and while I do believe that there have been some Oktoberfest celebrations um, in other places, the official one will be coming back in 2022 this year. Uh, It'll last for 17 days and take place from September 17th to October 3rd. So, cheers to hundreds more years of Oktoberfest. I love that for them. Right. Uh, so, what is your story? Then I'll get my sources. Okay. So, I, I said earlier, my parents at one point lived in Germany for a few years mm-hmm. and loved a lot of the things of the culture, celebrated Oktoberfest when they lived there, and then just this past year... 
because they have moved back and now live in Florida again, they found that there's a town in Georgia, mm-hmm. and I, I'm pretty sure it's called Helen, Georgia. Okay. The entire town, year-round, is like an ode to Germany. It's like a oh, German wow. town. And during September, October, they do a full-scale Oktoberfest. That's awesome. So my my parents went in 2021 just because they'd been stuck in their home for two years yeah, for COVID. September of 2021 was like when numbers were going down and like yeah yeah. Uh, but so they they went and like my mom has a dirndl and my stepdad has lederhosen and uh-huh. like they did the whole thing. So if you can't travel to Munich but you want like an authentic experience. I don't think Helen, Georgia is the only town like that. Yeah. Like, I actually know that there's another town in Texas where it's like... Yeah. Like I said, this article mentioned a few places. So, there are those very similar experiences in different parts of the world. Right. Uh, And then if you go and you absolutely love it, then go to Munich. Because I think from everything I've gathered, like, even an American who thinks they can drink... Gets to something like Oktoberfest in Munich, and we cannot handle <laughs> our alcohol the way the German can. Like, yeah. it is a different breed of drinking. Right. And so, like, people show up to things like Oktoberfest planning to go, like, real hard for eight days, and by, like, night two, you're done. Right. So, I would I would maybe try a smaller festival before booking a ticket to Munich. Totally. But Helen, Georgia, for sure, is, like, a very good place in the United States. And Cincinnati, if you want to see some wieners racing. Yeah. <laughs> that, too. But, like, the whole town of Helen is Yeah, no, that sounds German, really cool, honestly. Not just, like, the two weeks for Oktoberfest. Yeah. Like, I think Cincinnati's would be, like, a fun party. Yeah. But, like... That would be, like, a vacation to, like, experience lots of Bavarian culture. Yeah, which sounds really cool. Yes. Um, so, my sources for this were an Eater.com article, the one that I quoted, which was called Oktoberfest Beer-Soaked History Explained by Dana Haptic or Haddock. Uh, then I also used Oktoberfest.net. They had a section of the history of Oktoberfest. Uh, And those two actually had a ton of information, so I just had to kind of supplement it a little bit with Wikipedia. Uh, But that was all that I used. Wonderful. Yes. I don't think I'd be attending in 2022. No, I feel like I still need a little bit more time. Yeah. And honestly, given the state of things, like, with the different variants, who knows if it will honestly happen. Well, yeah. Um, Or if it'll be a smaller scale. I feel like Germany is pretty still locked down, even right now. And I know we've got nine months, so who knows what will happen between now and then. But And I hope it does, because I think we need things like that to come back for us to start to feel some normalcy. Right. But only if it's safe enough. Totally. We don't need six million people drinking beer and getting drunk and singing songs in a tent. Yeah. During yeah. a pandemic. Yeah. They, I, I think, you know, the politicians, um, I can't remember who exactly were saying, like, they just didn't want to be a super spreader event that then, like, started a new variant, basically. Or World War Three. Yeah. <laughs> or that. Uh, but, yeah, no, they, I think that they're going to probably make a decision about the one this year a little bit closer. Probably over the summer. I yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, hopefully one day when things are safer across the world, it'll one day be something we go to, even though I probably won't drink much beer because it's not my type of beer. There's carbs. There's, there's carnival rides. There's a lot of roast chickens and pork sausages and, and almonds. <laughs> um, or maybe by then I'll have developed a taste for other beers. There you go. Yeah. We can only hope. We can only hope. <laughs> All right. Well, now we know why Amaretto and why Oktoberfest. It's one of my favorite new fun facts. <laughs> Tell everyone that Oktoberfest started as a wedding. I bet no one knows that. Yeah. I'm gonna, that's all my conversations this week are gonna lead with that. (laughs) But anyway, we are now at our, you know, bar cocktail of the week. We never really named the segment. It's just a kind of open forum for us to talk about places we like. The places we've been. And let me tell you, we're gonna talk about one of, if not, my favorite brewery. In New York City right now. Wow. Yes. Called Evil Twin Brewery. And I've been trying to get Vanessa to go. We just haven't, like... We haven't been able to go. We haven't been able to go. But it is a brewery that has such interesting beers. Like, their flavors are so unique. Their variety is so wide and diverse. Uh, and they also have a lot of cool flavored seltzers. I remember you saying they do because it was back when I didn't drink beer that you first went. Right. So in the summer they do a very very broad line of like hard seltzers, mm-hmm. but not like grapefruit and watermelon. It's like firecracker popsicle seltzer or lemon meringue pie. Yeah. Like really interesting flavors. Um, and then what I really love. So their tap room is great. You can get flights and try. They have tons of great fruity sours, which I know you'll love now. Mm-hmm. Great, um, just everything. They have so many great stouts and pilsners. Um, but I love the modern day take they do on the naming of their beers. It's not just like Test Batch 23 or Fruity Beer, you know, whatever. It's like, like, right here, this is the triple IPA. It's called New York, New York. It feels nice to say it twice. That's the That's whole so name. Um, another one that I love. <laughs> it's another IPA. It says, I live in constant fear of being asked to share a fun fact about me. Like, that's the name of the beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're just very, like, funny, culturally relevant. Um, and then they have flavors like... Nilla and Straubs and Mallows, and it's a strawberry, vanilla, marshmallow. Oh my god, that sour sounds so ale. good! Sour ale, you would actually probably love it. That sounds um, so good. Yeah, one of my favorite that they do, they have a series that are like super fruity beers, um, and it's they're just they're very good beers. Their cans are very like on point. The tap mm. rooms are beautiful. It's just a great place to spend an afternoon. They put a lot of thought into their flavors, and they do it right. Yeah, I definitely need to go. Um, And I I did want to find out why they were called Evil Twins, so we did some Googling, uh, and we did find out that it started, was it nomadically, I think it said, in Denmark in 2010, 
why did I say 2010? 2010. <laughs> uh, and it did obviously make its way to New York and now has a location in Brooklyn and also ended up opening a location in Queens. Yes. But it opened in Queens first. The oh, sorry. Is the new one. Opposite. Opened in Queens first and then in Brooklyn. Um, and then I found a New York Times article, but I don't pay for the New York Times, so I can't read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> but apparently the owner of Evil Twin is himself an identical twin, um, and his brother has a brewery um, or a beer company that opened in 2006, and... Um, they apparently were close growing up, but they haven't spent time together or spoken much since 2010, uh, when, I guess, when he launched Evil Twin. Um, I don't know if he's trying to say that he's the Evil Twin, because he opened up a brewery, if he's calling his brother. I, I don't know. I don't There's know. There's some animosity there, but he used it to cultivate genius. Yes. I And, you know, if you are a member of New York Times, if you pay for it... I do. You could have asked me. <laughs> it's too late. We're in it. <laughs> you can look up the article. It's called The Beer Twins, in parentheses, One Evil, Take Their Feud to Queens. So, okay. so yeah, if you're interested, check that article out. And check out Evil Twin Brewery. It, they do distribute. Uh, I'm not sure how far, but mm-hmm. I've definitely gotten their beers in bars around the city. And maybe the tri-state area, and perhaps even further. Yeah. But um, definitely check them out. If you see them in a store, grab one, try it. Their flavor combinations are legitimately some of the most interesting beers I've ever had. I'm going to be trying it. Yes. Hopefully soon, and I'll report back. Okay. All right. Well, until next week. Yes. Cheers. Cheers.